0: For years, we've been talking and writing about the massive redistribution of income and wealth from ordinary working Americans like me to super rich like you. Correct. And, and we always knew that number was big. But my God, Nick, now we know exactly how big it's been.
1: Yeah, In fact, bigger than we thought.
2: Uh, it sums up to $47 trillion. That's money they could have had in the bank.
0: From the offices of Civic Ventures in
1: downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. One American capitalist take on how we got into this mess and how we can get out. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of
0: Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So, Nick, for... For years we've been talking and writing about the massive redistribution of income and wealth from ordinary working Americans like me to the super rich like you.
1: Correct. And,
0: and we always knew that number was big, but my god Nick, now we know exactly how big it's been.
1: Yeah, this is a very exciting day for us or moment for us because finally Someone with the math and economics chops to get to the bottom of exactly how much money has been redistributed from the bottom to the top uh, has done it. And the Rand Corporation, which is one of the most credible nonpartisan think tanks, maybe in the world, has done this amazing analysis of what has happened basically to incomes since 1975. And the results are simply shocking uh, and, and in fact bigger than we thought in, in 2018 dollars 2.5 trillion dollars per year has been redistributed upward from the bottom 90 percent of americans to the top one percent of americans what's particularly shocking is the people in the 90th to 99th percentile they basically just held their own right even people in the 90th percentile fell behind
0: and be clear, that's two point five trillion dollars out of a twenty trillion dollar economy. Right. It's about twelve percent
1: right. of GDP. and we we now know by decile, uh, you know, how badly people were hurt. And for a full-time median worker using conservative uh, inflation number, the, instead of earning fifty, they earn ninety two if you use, a more, I think, frankly, a more realistic number, it's $102,000.
0: So think about that, folks. If you're earning, if you are a median worker, that means that somebody in the middle, you're earning $50,000 a year and you're struggling to get by, how much easier would your life be if you were earning twice of that for the same yeah,
1: work? $102,000. Yeah.
0: $102,000, how much better your life would be? And To be clear, this is not some fantasy. That is what you would have been earning had income distributions remained constant, had incomes broadly continued to grow with GDP at the same rate as GDP as they had done in the three decades prior to 1975. If we had just kept things the same, the median worker would be earning yeah. twice what they are now. and Over that 45 years- uh, I'll let you I'll let give you the gift of of putting the yeah. price tag on it. How much of the bottom 90% lost Nick?
1: 50 trillion dollars was redistributed upwards from the bottom 90% to the top 1%. So that's it's just a it's a shocking number and I think explains again why our politics is so screwed up and shows what it will take to get the country back on track. That the idea that America will do better if Americans don't do better is just folly. It's folly. It's just wishful thinking. You know, to try to help people understand this data, I hope that they will read the piece that David Rolfe, my colleague and co-author, and I wrote uh, in Time magazine describing sort of the ups and downs and ins and outs of all this data. And that piece is in the show notes in the details. And Goldie, today we're incredibly fortunate to get to talk to the mathematician, Carter Price, who co-authored the study at RAND. And I think he's gonna take us through the detail of what they did and how they did it.
2: My name is uh, Carter Price. I'm a senior mathematician at the RAND Corporation. And uh, you know I'm here to talk about the, the work that uh, Catherine Edwards and I did looking at trends in economic inequality over the last 43 years.
1: So Carter, could you tell us more about what the Rand Corporation is? Because people have heard about it, but we they don't really know.
2: Yeah, the, the Rand Corporation is a uh, nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank. We do policy research on a whole range of issues. You know, we study economic inequality. We study healthcare policy. That's one of the areas that I work in quite a bit. Is on healthcare policy. Uh, we also look at you know labor policy, labor market policy, environmental policy, defense policy. Any kind of policy question, uh, we try and and support uh, providing, you know, nonpartisan objective analysis, ideally based on as much data as possible. But, you know, sometimes we we can apply a whole host of methods to to study these kinds of problems.
0: Right. You know, a lot of organizations describe themselves as nonpartisan think tanks, but RAND is one of the few that actually
1: right. If you wouldn't mind, can you characterize the nature of this study and your findings in general terms?
2: Yeah, so we looked at essentially the income trends over the last 43 years, essentially from 1975 to uh, 2018, which was the most recent uh, year the data were available, to uh, look at how uh, different groups had uh, their incomes had changed and essentially to try and calculate the wedge caused by rising inequality in terms of what people's take-home pay was, what people earned. We looked at a lot of different. Uh, we used a lot of different data sets, mostly the CPS, the Current Population Survey, which is a survey that goes back, you know, to the uh, at least the 50s that has uh, income information, demographic information, a whole host of information. Because that data set doesn't do a great job capturing uh, the highest earners, it's what's known as top coded, so the you know the highest earners their values their, their income is just listed as you know hundred thousand dollars or hundred fifty thousand dollars or whatever the top code was for that year. so we used the work of uh, Piketty and Saez and uh, Gabriel Zuckman, their world top income database to figure out exactly you know how much money was going to the top one percent top five percent top point one percent and, and uh, essentially stitched these two data sets together so we have a, a picture of the entire, income distribution going back to 1975.
1: Now you can tell people how much different their incomes would have been if the country had not become more unequal every year.
2: That was one of the things that we worked on was to make sure that we knew had incomes grown at the rate of, of per capita GDP. If you look at the income from 1947 to 1975 it more or less grew with per capita gdp across the board so the bottom quintile the middle quintile the all of the all across the distribution incomes were growing more or less with per capita gdp if you look after 1975 we see a rising inequality and we see a big difference between what those at the bottom of the uh, income spectrum were making and those at the top so we essentially try to quantify what those workers you know, below the 90th percentile would have made had the, that uh, you know, pre-1975 trend kept on going. And so that people essentially were were benefiting from uh, a growing economy as opposed to having stagnant incomes.
0: One of the unique contributions of your working paper is that while others have talked about this shift of income from the lower distributions to the top 1% as a in percentage terms, with your data, you're able to put an actual number on it.
2: Yes. Yeah, so the the bottom uh, 90th percentile had their incomes grown with per capita GDP. In 2018, they would have earned $2.5 trillion more than they actually earned.
0: Were you surprised that the number was that high? Uh,
2: a little bit. I had someone just asked me and I got out a napkin. I probably would have come up with something around a trillion would have been my guess. And obviously this is... You know, two and a half times that. And so I, I was surprised and we definitely checked those numbers a lot of different ways because it was such a large number.
1: So th- that implies uh, that for the bottom 90% of Americans, there was essentially no income growth over the last, whatever it is, 43 years. Is that correct?
2: There there was income growth for different parts of the distribution. At the the very bottom, there was some income growth, but nowhere near that of per capita GDP. So they weren't really in the middle. Uh, and certainly for certain subpopulations, So, if you talk about white men, white men's incomes below the median were essentially stagnant. And so there was no growth there. But then other populations, there was some growth, but nowhere near what you would expect given the way the economy grew. And certainly nothing close to the incomes growth at the very top.
1: I think one of the really, uh, the coolest parts of this data set is that it describes what's happening for basically any any old person. That's what makes this so cool, is if you're a median worker or if you're in the 20th percentile or whatever it is, you can sort of see the degree to which uh, you got left behind. So for a, a median full-time prime age worker who now earns about $50,000 a year using Uh, a fairly conservative inflation number, they would be earning $92,000 if they had been held harmless by the last 40 years of rising inequality, correct? Yes, yeah. That fact I had kind of understood. Here's the fact that I find staggering is that if you're at the 90th percentile, that is to say, if you earn more than 90%, percent of other Americans, you're today in 2018, earning about $133,000 a year. But if you had been held harmless by rising inequality, you would, instead of earning $133,000, you'd be earning $168,000, which is just astonishing. So even people in our country who are doing relatively well have been left behind in just a really unbelievable way. Even in the 95th percentile, where if you're earning $191,000 a year, you would actually be earning $198,000 a year, which is not that different. But it's astonishing how completely most American families have been disadvantaged by these decades. It just it's it's virtually everyone
0: except the top one percent who who are earning twice what they would have right more than twice right. what they would have had had uh, levels of inequality remain constant. It's a huge number, this two point five trillion dollars a year, but uh, you've also calculated over the course of the past forty five years as income uh, inequality grew, the year by year accumulation of that number. And uh, you calculate that the bottom ninety percent had lost forty-seven trillion dollars to rising inequality through 2018. Is that correct? Yeah,
2: that's the the cumulative number for those forty-three years. Uh, it sums up to forty-seven trillion dollars. You can't translate that directly into wealth because you know people pay right. taxes. People would have spent that, but that's still uh, that's a lot of wealth that has been lost to that that side of the population. And so when we think about family instability and instability and income and people losing their unemployment, and so they have to be homeless. That's money they could have had in the bank. Some portion of that.
0: Right. Could have invested in themselves, could have earned enough money to help pay for a college education without going into debt. There's been previous reports. I think the OECD did a report some years back talking about how rising inequality knocked as much as uh, nine points off of U.S. GDP growth uh, over the previous two decades. Presumably, had our economy been more equal, uh, GDP would have grown even faster. So, you know, in essence, your your numbers actually underestimate the loss to the bottom 90%.
2: That's that's quite possible, you know, given that GDP growth may have been faster. There's certainly a lot of there have been a lot of studies that indicate that uh, lower inequality supports faster economic growth, and it's it's not a you know clear cut case, but there's very strong evidence that that's the case.
1: Right, but to be clear, Carter, your study does not take into account rising prices.
2: So it 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 does to some extent because we do capture inflation. Uh, We just capture the overall inflation as opposed to the consumer. Uh, good inflation.
1: Got it. But in in terms of understanding the circumstance, if if you're trying to understand the circumstance of uh, the median full-time earner that was earning 50 and now only earns, uh, would have earned 92. In addition, I guess what my point was is in addition to having foregone someplace between 40 and $50,000 in annual income, that earner is also paying astronomically more for educating their kids in college for housing for healthcare so on and so forth
0: child care
1: child care all of those yeah. expenses and th- and this analysis does not contemplate the pressures that those dynamics put on these people too at all
2: yeah that's that's absolutely correct that you okay. know we use the overall inflation rate for the yep. the broader economy and even the CPI doesn't really do a great job capturing that because it's again for all consumers or all urban consumers. So right. you know, if you're a a single parent and have to have childcare, those prices are you know very high and and that's just sort of that, that's a different basket of goods than is used to calculate the inflation. And so it, we don't have a tool for that.
1: Right. And so if you're trying to understand how people are doing <laughs> and how people are feeling. This data set, which shows how much income the typical family has foregone over the last 40 years, tells one side of the story. And then the rising price of maintaining a middle-class lifestyle tells another part of that story. And when you put those two stories together, it's super obvious why everyone is so angry, and our politics is so polarized. It feels like to me, like that, that the combination just puts insane amounts of pressure on the typical family, and it you know it is shocking and kind of hard to believe that people can hold it together.
2: Yeah, I mean especially in in this time when a lot of people are unemployed, right, uh, and their you know, benefits are being cut. There are all these other issues that uh, you know just shows the fragility in the in the system when the inequality is this high.
1: So when you look at these numbers, and I'm not sure how deeply you may have looked at the knock-on or tertiary effects, you know, one of the things that seems intuitively obvious to me, may not be true, but seems true, is that if the median worker had earned, instead of 50, call it 100, or plus plus or minus, whatever, they would have paid a lot more taxes.
2: So there's the offsetting... Angle that that those top runners do pay higher marginal rates, and if they were making instead of 1.1 million, they were making 600 thousand dollars, they would be losing 600 thousand dollars at that tarp marginal rate. However, a lot of that income is capital income, and uh, are things right. that are you know taxed at, at different rates. And so you know we did crunch those numbers, and it it does seem like there would have been higher tax revenue, but uh, there are, there are a lot of moving parts there, and so it's hard to hard to say definitively. I will say though that given that you know, payroll taxes would have been higher and that's what funds Medicare and Social Security, that if if people's incomes had tracked with the broader economic growth, then uh, you would have seen a much, much more uh, revenue going into
1: Social Security. What's super interesting to me is when you begin to unpack these numbers and think about the knock-on effects of a society where people captured the same amount of economic growth that they once did, what the impact of that would have been reverberating through communities, because it's not just federal taxes that would have been higher. It's obviously state and local taxes that would have been higher and better schools. And I mean, you know, just a billion things that would have gone better over the last 40 years than they have. And it is quite astonishing when you start to, you know, kind of peel back the layers of the onion, in my opinion, you know, just where you're like, oh my gosh, well, what about that? What about this? What about that? (laughs) And, um, and again, and then you look around the country at how angry
0: everybody is, and you're like, oh, I get it. So Carter, I want to get to one of the other unique contributions of this working paper. And that is you and your colleague have actually come up with a a new uh, inequality metric where a lot of people are familiar with the Gini coefficient, but you're using something different here. Could you explain what it is and why you think it's important? Yeah.
2: So we essentially came up with a a measure of equitable growth or or of growth equity so that you can assess, you know, essentially what we've been talking about is if you have a target rate of income growth based on GDP growth or something like that, how close was the, the actual income growth to that. And so you can, that lets you look at is a rising tide lifting all boats or to what degree is that true? And then you can also com- use that to compare different different groups to determine you know which groups are, are seeing more rapid income growth and try and come up with an explanation as to why that is. You can also look at it through different business cycles. So we, in, in our uh, piece, we looked at that so that you can find some groups did really well in the 90s Most groups did really poorly in the uh, 2000s and had mixed results in the uh, 2010s, and so it lets you break down who was who was benefiting from a rising economy and to what degree.
0: Uh, Am I correct to understand this that this is that this you can essentially think of it as a percent of real GDP growth over that period? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So you know for example if you're looking at um, full year full time prime aged workers gdp growth since 1975 was 118% their incomes have grown at 321% of 118%. Yeah,
2: so they're they essentially captured three times as much of the economic growth as you would have expected right. had their incomes just sort of grown at GP
0: per capita. Whereas the the median during that period only captured 17.4% of growth.
2: Right. So they weren't, that segment of the population wasn't really, they were only getting sort of 20% or less than 20% of the benefit of, of a growing economy.
0: Do you have a name for this metric? Are we calling it the Carter value? The Carter? <laughs> Carter the Carter <laughs> coefficient. We, I
1: love that the
0: Carter we're coefficient.
2: It, yeah. <laughs> okay, we're just calling it Omega, but uh, sort
0: of a, you're going to have to do song. better than that, dude. Yeah, we're going yeah, to. I mean, to Jeannie better. named it after himself, so we could call it the Carter okay, we're coefficient. We're it, it Carter also, coefficient. Let's be clear: the Carter coefficient across all income distributions across most demographic groups in that period, 1947 and 1974. You know, it varied from year to year, but it was roughly 100.
2: It was in that ballpark. Yeah.
0: So generally, broadly, incomes rose with growth in real GDP. And since then, yeah, in that bottom 25th percentile, you know, for full time workers, it's been thirteen point five instead of hundred. Whereas again, we said at the very top, the mean of the top one percent, it's three hundred and twenty one. That paints a stunning picture.
2: I mean, it goes to show that a rising tide has not been lifting all boats. And, and that's sort of understandable and, and observable, but I think this, we're hoping that this helps people sort of better quantify that and better understand.
1: I think this is an extraordinarily important finding because it allows policymakers to finally frame up where the there is in what we should be doing to mend these problems. Because it's fine and well to say, well, we live in an unequal country and we should do better, but it's an entirely different thing to say that the point of politics or, you know, the point of policy should be to close the gap from where we are to back to where we once were, you know, it just makes, it just makes your work much more tangible. But, you know, I think you can just have much more useful conversations about what to do and how to do it and what's, you know, what's necessary and what's overreaching and so on and so forth. So
2: I certainly hope so.
0: I would have thought that much of this shift in income was due to capital gains. But what you actually see in this data is that the bulk of this is earned income. Am I correct?
2: I guess it depends on what segment of the population you're talking about, but certainly the uh, there was a substantial growth in earned income for uh, those at the top, and we did we added in capital income because right. just to, you know, to see. And so we've we've done this, uh, we've cut this data a lot of different ways to try and figure out how best to tell the story and how best to convey the information. And, and so we have looked at it from strictly a labor standpoint, and then also from a overall income.
0: But one of the 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 biggest driving factor is a shift in salary, shift of salaries and wages from the bottom to the top. It's not mostly the rich people just you know earning lots of money on their portfolios. They're being paid more. It's executive pay. It's uh, the pay to professionals, doctors, lawyers, etc. Uh, am I correct in in understanding it that way?
2: I want to be careful about. Interpreting it that way, because there there has been, uh, if you look at particularly those at the bottom ninety percent, they've been hit by two different forces. One, you've seen a decline in overall the the share of of uh, the economy that's going to wages and salary, right? And so that's that's declined. And then on top of that, the share of income uh, for the bottom ninety percent, their share of that that slice of the pie has been declining. So they're, they're getting a smaller slice of a smaller pie. And and so that's, there've been two effects that have hit them. The 90th to the 99th percentile, those sort of very high earners, but not the highest earners, their share of, of the pie has stayed about the same. And then that top 1% uh, are getting a much bigger part of a, of a shrinking pie, but their absolute size of slice has grown. I don't know if that if that makes sense. Yeah, No,
0: that makes yeah. total sense. Yeah,
1: yeah. totally. Well, this has been fantastic, right, Goldie? I mean, I think we have everything that we need.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, I got to tell you, Carter, we, we were so thrilled to see this because um, we have touched on this for years in, in the pieces we've written, but it was just in our own sort of back of the napkin math. We didn't know how big the number was. We just knew it was likely very big. and And to see... Somebody as reputable as the Rand Corporation come out and confirm this and say it was even bigger than we imagined. Uh, That's very exciting, and
1: hopefully, it will force political leaders to reckon with the size and scale of the problem that we face as a country. That it will allow people to formulate strategies that can address these issues in a way that will make an actual impact on the lives of ordinary Americans. Let us hope. Yeah. Thank you, buddy. Thank you, guys. What's really extraordinary about this data set is that it shows, it sort of proves beyond a shadow of a doubt, that this redistribution of income had actually nothing to do with economics. It was all power. It was all a set of different political choices that advantaged the few, disadvantaged the many. Because for the prior 30 or 40 years, everyone grew the same, right? Like what, what we have said a million times is that economics is simply how human beings instantiate their social and moral preferences about status, privileges, and power. And we lived in a society for a long time where we agreed that we should all treat one another fairly. And then Ronald Reagan and neoliberalism came along and all of a sudden if the rich got richer that would be good for everyone right, cause, and
0: because a rising tide lifts all yachts
1: yeah as it yeah, turns it out does. <laughs> that's right and So we began in the mid-70s, early 70s, to make a different set of economic choices. We froze the minimum wage. We basically eliminated overtime protections. We deregulated industries. We did all these things.
0: top marginal tax rates.
1: That's right. And we did all these things simultaneously, all you know, sort of in the service of this fraudulent idea about what grows the economy, that if the rich get richer, that's good for the economy. And if the poor get richer, that's bad for the economy. Trickle down economics or neoliberalism or whatever it is, every tiny little thing uh, that we did in policy enacted by both Republicans and Democrats contributed to this widening gap in income. And it's just, it's an astonishingly stark reminder of how our economic arrangements are simply a reflection of our political values and our power relationships and how easy it has been to con ordinary americans out of their money
0: right and and i want to make an important point here because i know what a lot of people are thinking you want to double median income that's just going to make american companies uncompetitive and these jobs will move overseas and we'll lose jobs and everybody will be worse off. If you if you raise wages for the bottom 90 percent, it will increase costs for corporate America and we'll have this incredibly uncompetitive economy. And I just have to say the data tells us, no, 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 that's, that's not what's happened. We slashed wages at the bottom. We, we, we've allowed wages to stagnate for the vast majority of Americans. And that just went to other Americans.
1: Right. If if we, you don't have to, yeah. You don't have to raise prices. You just have to lower salaries and giveaways to rich people.
0: Yeah, Nick, <laughs> yeah. Nick, you need to make less right. money. That's all we're talking about. And no, that's true. And to be clear, that's the way we did it during the era when we built the great American middle class. Yes, a middle class with incredible racial and gender inequalities, but we built this great American middle class at a time when those in the top 1% earned 10 times median. And that's a lot, that's a big difference. When you're earning 10 times median, that's a big income. And today it's 32 times median, it's unnecessary. And so yeah. we could have an, an economy in America in which it's a lot a lot more equal between distributions and completely equal within distributions and you know it's
1: hard to understate how different the country would be sort of politically socially in terms of health outcomes education outcomes if that 2.5 trillion dollars per year had stayed with working and middle class Americans and not been redistributed upwards, like just how much more economic stability there would be for ordinary uh, families. And in a world where people's incomes were rising with GDP, we probably wouldn't have had the financial crisis of 2007 and 8, which was a debt-fueled crisis. Right. Which And the debt-fueled crisis was a consequence of stagnant wages. So people used debt to make up for the fact that their wages were stagnant. It's almost inconceivable how different the country, well, I mean, it it, it is actually conceivable how different the country would be uh, if we hadn't screwed this up in this way. If you visit Norway or Australia, or New Zealand, or to a certain extent Canada today, you find a much more stable society. You find uh, institutions that are far less fragile. You find healthcare systems that work far better. You find uh, middle-income families that are infinitely more stable and secure. And and again, it it had nothing to do with economics. (laughs) There was an economic outcome as a consequence of this, but these were political choices That advantaged the few and disadvantaged the many. And that's what neoliberalism is. It's simply an ideology that concentrates wealth and advantage.
0: In his massive new book, Capital and Ideology, Thomas Piketty points out that the United States went from one of the most equal economies in the world, one of the most equal, to one of the least over the past 45 years. We made that choice. And here's the thing, we can unmake it. And the great thing about having these numbers in front of us, Nick, is I think it it helps open uh, people's eyes to the scale of the problem.
1: We rarely ask our listeners to do anything, but I do think that in this case, there is something to do, which is to begin to socialize these numbers and to force our political leaders to reckon with the scale of the problem. It is super important that the Biden administration, should they come to power, and I hope they will, understands that it is the difference between fifty and hundred and two thousand dollars a year. That's their job: is to raise to double the median wage. That unless you're talking about that, you are under you are under the problem. And by the way, that that's probably not even good enough. So when we talk about economic policy, it has to be framed in that context. It's not good enough to say well, we should give people a little bit more. The question we should be asking is what are we going to do to get people from 50 to 100 the, the median family or frankly the the family in the top in the 90th percentile from whatever it was 160 to 190. This has to be The goal of politics and economic policy. And so I hope that our listeners will grab this Time Magazine article from the show notes and tweet it at the Biden campaign, and tweet it at Elizabeth Warren, and tweet it at Bernie Sanders, and tweet it at Mark Warner or any other elected leader that you know of. By the way, tweet it at Marco Rubio. Right. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like our elected leaders must reckon with. This data. And, you know, success means, you know, political leaders beginning to grapple with this problem at the scale of the problem. Right.
0: And if they understand this as a $50 trillion problem, we have a better shot at getting a $50 trillion solution. Absolutely. On the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we'll be talking with economist Suresh Naidu about coercive labor markets and the imbalance of power between employers and employees.
2: Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.